Energy. Energy, energy, energy. <laughs> Did you just say Rochelle Obama? Michelle. Michelle. Okay, because I thought you said Rochelle Obama. I know right? I have a thick accent. <laughs> <laughs> What's your name? Sarah. <laughs> I can't really say how it affected my career. I've been kind of guessing, but I... I always had an inkling that it didn't make things particularly easy for me. <laughs> Just got a hug. I use my fake name. <laughs> What's your fake name? Sally. Sarah. Hey Sally. Oh I'm loving this week. We have a great episode. Yes it is a great interview. You know I thought I knew a lot of stuff about Rodney Croom. Yeah. Um, But it turned out when I spoke to him I didn't and it moved me to. Is it because you researched the wrong Rodney (laughs) Croom? No, but I mean, you hear about Rodney Croom and what he's done, but then you go like, and you go, oh yeah, I know it all. Um, But it wasn't until I actually spoke to him um, that it, that it actually moved me um, to the point of tears after I hung up. I managed to keep my shit together. Um, That's difficult for you. Yeah. On on air. But I didn't weep. Like I just was like, it's so, yeah, it's so moving. And and just just to hear the stories that he was telling and stuff, like it's. It was a horrible time. Oh, disgusting. It's Tasmania in the 90s and stuff and yeah. a little bit before, so. So the 80s? 80s. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I do want to do is, though, just while we're here and before we put the interview on, if you're listening on iTunes, um, can you please remember to subscribe and uh, leave a review um, because – not only is it great to hear what you think. Um, well, Sally was, needs that reinforcement constantly. I do, guys. What do you think of the show? Um, it actually builds us up, puts us up in the algorithms as well. And um, I won't get started talking on code and stuff because Sarah oh. will just lose her shit. Mm. I know, baby. Code. PowerPoint. Oh. <laughs> Electricity. PowerPoint. That's the only thing I have to say. It's only <laughs> What else am I supposed to say? Electricity. <laughs> um, Thomas Edison. <laughs> Light globe. Keyboard. Um, but anyway, please, please enjoy this interview with Rodney Croom. It's a long one. He covers, uh, first of all, he covers the Tasmania stuff. Well, he's um, basically covering about 40 or 50 years. Yeah. So stick with it. It's amazing. It is. Um, and let us know what you think. Um, we would love to hear from you. For the algorithm. For the algorithms. God love the algorithms. Okay, calm down. Can you talk me through this the sodomy laws in Tasmania, because it wasn't until 1997, was it, that it became legal? Was it May 1997? Yeah, well, that, that's right. Uh, Tasmania was the last state in Australia to 
have criminal laws um, against gay sex. Uh, and uh, it had the worst penalties in the Western world. But probably the first thing to say is that um, the laws weren't just about anal sex, as the term sodomy might imply. Um, they were they criminalised all forms of sexual or physical contact between men. Um, so effectively, any kind of uh, you know sexual relationship was against the law uh, if it was between men. It also criminalised any form of anal or sex between heterosexual couples. Um, and on top of that, in Tasmania, there was also a law criminalising cross-dressing. So um, transgender people were effectively criminals as well. Um, it was a pretty repressive situation. And like I said, uh, Tasmania was not only the last state to remove those kinds of laws in Australia, but it had the most, it had the harshest penalties in the Western world, which were a maximum of 21 years in jail, uh, a more severe penalty than for rape or armed robbery. That, that blows my mind. Like, I cannot even comprehend, I can't comprehend that at all. What was it like in Tasmania at the time? Well, those laws created a pretty repressive atmosphere, as you can imagine. Um, I, I remember the first gay community meeting I went to in Hobart just after I came out. Uh, and people there warned me not to use my surname when talking to others because there could be police informants in the meeting. Oh. Um, and they warned me that when I left the meeting, um, the police could be there to uh, waiting to take down the registration number of my car so that uh, they could add my name to a list of, um, to what was called the pink list, which was a list of known homosexuals. Um, and those kinds of stories, uh, you know, <laughs> I just heard so many of them. I heard there were stories about local gay bars um, being raided. Um, there was a story about a bar that was established, uh, a, a back bar, like a, um, at, a, at a hotel that was behind another bar that was on the street and it was deliberately established uh, behind this other bar because the front bar was frequented by lawyers and uh, lawyers would provide some kind of protection for the gay people going to the bar down the back, protection from the police. Um, this was the kind of atmosphere that I came out in. Um, there was only one publicly identified gay person in Tasmania, and that was Bob Brown. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, we, we didn't accept this, uh, and we thought the law should change, and we set up a small stall at Salamanca Market to change the law um, with a few petitions on it, and within a week or two, the Hobart City Council, which runs Salamanca Market, had closed down the stall and brought in the police, and we were all arrested. Uh, for, um, to use the council's term, uh, for being openly homosexual in a public market. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, and over seven excessive Saturday mornings, the market is on, is on Saturday morning, yeah. um, 130 people were arrested uh, in defence of that store, and that became the biggest uh, act of gay rights, civil disobedience in Australian history. So all of these things together... The repression, uh, the fear, uh, and the active, you know, uh, persecution of people, yeah. arresting them for having a petition in a public market, um, that 
spoke of the reality of being gay in Tasmania. I'd grown up thinking that I lived in a democracy, but when I came out, uh, I realised that as a gay man, I actually lived in a police state. Oh, my goodness. Like, so... I get, I've read that the um, the then Premier, um, uh, what was his name? Was it Robin? Robin Gray. Robin Gray, yeah. He said that, like, homosexuals were unwelcome in Tasmania. Yep, that's right. He said um, he, he was launching a Tourism Tasmania campaign in Sydney. Tourism, mind you. <laughs> and he said <laughs> that everyone was welcome to come to Tasmania Uh the Aborigines, Greenies, and the Thick, which was an odd list, um, and uh, and a big concession for him because he was really anti-green. But then he went on to say, homosexuals weren't welcome. Um, uh, and, and that was the attitude of the time amongst officials in Tasmania that uh, they wanted all homosexuals to leave. Yeah. Um, and none to come here. They wanted uh, a gay-free, a gay-free island. Um, there were members of our parliament who seriously put forward legislation to compuls- compulsorily buy all homosexual t- people one-way tickets to Sydney or Melbourne. Are you for they, real? Oh my goodness! Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. My mind is being blown. I just... These are the same people that put forward legislation to criminalise. Coming out, they didn't want any. They thought it should be a criminal offence to um, talk about being gay. Uh, some members even supported bringing back, and this is what I find I find hard, it hard to say this because it's so hurtful and because it just seems so bizarre. But it's true; it's on the Hansard record. They wanted to bring back the death penalty for homosexuality. So it wasn't just um, a situation of government officials. Or, or, or civic leaders upholding the existing law, they wanted it to be made more repressive. They wanted the situation to be um, more dire for us. Uh, and, uh, and, and yeah, so that created a very difficult situation where we knew we had to fight very hard to uh, achieve equality. Yeah, so what was the moment that, that people started fighting back Apart from the markets, well, the markets. <laughs> the markets. <laughs> it was at the market. Um, yeah. Because we, you know, the police came in, they arrested us. Yeah. And in response to that, more people came forward until there was hundreds of people down there protesting, um, and stepping forward to be arrested. Yeah. Uh, and there was a line of police fans all across the front of Parliament House and right up the next street, just. These vans that circulate through the city, um, taking arrested people up to the police station to be processed and kept in cells, and then coming back to get more people. Um, it was uh, it was a it was a moment of obviously terrible uh, repression, but also a moment of liberation for us. Well, this was our, yeah. the coming out of Gay Tasmania, yeah. um, uh, and the crowds, the, 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 the protesters against the ban, grew so large and the public backlash so great that um, the council backed down and gave us our stall and it's been there ever since. Um, but uh, So that was a big moment of, of the galvanised people and, but it certainly wasn't um, a, ca- 
cakewalk from there to decriminalisation. It was another decade before decriminalisation occurred and, and the backlash that we'd experienced at the market, the backlash to us being visible, uh, only grew. Um, yeah. When there was an attempt uh, the following year to move decriminalisation in Parliament, all hell broke loose, particularly in the north of the state, with anti angry, violent, loud, horrible anti-gay rallies um, in Alveston and Burnie and Devonport and Launceston. Yeah. There's one in, uh, in Hobart as well. Um, but again, we were not going to take this, so we we hired buses and people went from Hobart and Launceston to wherever the rally might be, and, and we had peaceful vigils outside. Um, we engaged those who went to these rallies, and... Uh, I think that was really important for us to do because it showed that we were resolute. We weren't going to take this. Um, we were going to show that uh, that uh, uh, there were two sides to this debate. Um, and uh, those rallies gradually faded away, but I don't think they would have unless we had actually gone there and um, sought to, to demonstrate against them. And see, this is the thing for me. We're not talking about, like, 1930s, 1940s. We're talking about the 80s, isn't it? Like, this is 1980. Oh, no, no, this is, this is, oh, yeah, 1999, this is, yeah. Yeah, this is um, recent times, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It did, <laughs> it did feel a little bit like the 1930s. <laughs> yeah, I just, like, that's what you um, think. It was kind of like, I remember at the time describing some of these rallies as, like, Nuremberg, but without the discipline. <laughs> yes. Because the audiences, <laughs> and they were large, hundreds yeah. of people, were shouting, you know, they, they they were chanting, kill them, kill them. It was awful. The, or the speakers whipped up. They said the worst things. Um, and they were blaming us for everything. They, they, you know, and they yeah. made the most outrageous claims about how we were responsible for Tasmania's high unemployment rate and if homosexuality was decriminalised or the industry would go... Um, it made no sense to. <laughs> that made no sense to me. <laughs> Nothing. But it resonated with the people who were there because, in their minds, there was some link between um, the standards they felt needed to be upheld and the prosperity they wanted for their island, which was, you know, um, which was slipping away at that stage. Tasmania was in transition from an industrial to a post-industrial economy, um, and that frightened a lot of people. And that fear was being uh, whipped up uh, by reference to us. Um, yeah. Like I said, that might seem strange to people, but it had happened before in Tasmania. Um, in the middle of the 19th century, um, there was a strong movement to end conflict transportation to the Australian colonies. And that movement was strongest in Tasmania, where the, there were the most convict, number of convicts. Mm. Um, and the anti-transportationists had one rhetorical trick that they knew would always work, and that was to say that convict, convictism led to unnatural vice. They blamed, uh, convict, they blamed convictism for homosexuality, and uh, associated the two, um, and it, like I said, it always worked to put yeah. crowds against convict transportation. So it wasn't new um, to use the fear of homosexuality to somehow, uh, somehow um, bring 
to get at people's fears about broader change. And so these, I mean, because when I think about people protesting now, it's usually a lot of religious groups and stuff, but were these religious groups as well or just normal people who were being, like, fear-mongered type thing? Um, there would have been, a, you know, a fair proportion of the people who went to these rallies who were from local churches. Yeah. Um, and they tended to be older people. Uh, and some of the speakers were clergy, but only a minority. Yeah. The majority of speakers were um, what we might call today culture warriors, right-wing culture warriors. Yeah. Uh, who, and, and God was barely ever referred to. That's why I said before that I think that what was really going on was this fear and anxiety about the future of Tasmania. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that is quite directly related to economic as well as social fears about the future. So economic and cultural fears about the future. Uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't really about what Leviticus says. Mm. It's, it, it, sorry, I'm just really stunned. Um, I just can't believe this has happened. Um, what, what federally though? What were politicians saying federally? Like people in Melbourne and Sydney, were they condoning it or? Um. No, uh, there was, as you can imagine, quite a bit of eye-rolling yeah. <laughs> about what was happening in Tasmania. Because um, it was a Keating government, uh, wasn't it, federally at the time? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and, and one of the reasons that the Hobart City Council backed down was it did get pressure from Canberra in terms of its funding. Yeah. Um, but there wasn't really any direct um, intervention at that stage. I think it was seen as a very specifically Tasmanian thing. <laughs> um, and, and we said at the time that that, was a, that kind of complacency was a, was a mistake. Yeah. I remember Richard Flanagan, the Tasmanian author who's won the you know, Man Booker Prize yeah. recently, he wrote a piece uh, for the... Fairfax Press saying that for people to think that this was just Tasmania, old-fashioned redneck Tasmania, and had which had and it had nothing to do with uh, the other states, was a terrible mistake because it was a new kind of hate, uh, which if it um, was left unchecked and unchallenged, um, would uh, transmute into hate on other grounds as well, including race. Um, and I remember others, you know, mainland commentators say, that's ridiculous, that would never happen. Mm. We will, this kind of hate we would never see in terms of gay stuff here, you know, Sydney and Melbourne, and certainly it would never jump the fence to become, uh, you know, campaigns about hate based on race. That's just so un-Australian. Yeah. And, of course, Richard was right. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, exactly. It's exa- yeah, <laughs> with exactly. The rise, with the rise of One Nation a few years later. Um, <laughs> so he was prescient. He said, look, this isn't the dying gasp of an old kind of hate. Yeah. This is a new kind of hate, yeah. and we all have to be alert to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, geez, One Nation fueled that fire, didn't it? But one, one Nation was exactly what he was predicting. Yeah. Yeah. It did jump the fence and become hate about race. Yeah. and about religion and everything else. Um, 
And it, yeah, it started here. But we also, like I said, uh, were responding to that. We weren't just running in terror from it. We were taking the, our campaign right up to it. And um, those rallies petered out because uh, the contrast between our um, peaceful vigils outside those meetings and the hatred inside, uh, I think, uh, enabled Tasmanians to see that what was really going on. Um, and the opinion polls in Tasmania were shifting uh, markedly over those years. So when we first started, um, when we were first being arrested at Salamanca, support for decriminalisation was 15% below the national average. Oh, but wow. uh, that, that quickly caught up and exceeded the national average as the years went on. Yeah, fantastic. Um, of course, it wasn't all just about those rallies. Um, there was a, a bigger picture with this campaign, and that was um, attempts within our parliament to try and change the law, which kept failing in the upper house, which was then very conservative. Yeah. Um, I mentioned the MPs who wanted to bring back, back the death penalty or send us to the mainland. They were upper house MPs who were very negative. I can't even believe um, anybody would even think to suggest that. I just, the death penalty, I can't believe it. Yeah, well, I, I, I remember that. I, I go back to that whenever I hear about African governments wanting to bring back the death penalty, like mm -hmm. in Uganda yeah. or, or Nigeria. And, um, and people in the West think, oh, that is so retrograde, that would never happen here. It, it did actually happen yeah, here. Yeah, absolutely. I can't <laughs> even... fairly recently. <laughs> Again, I go back to we're not talking about the 1930s. We're talking yeah. about late 80s. Wow. Um, so when it became clear that the upper house would be an obstacle for at least a few years, we went around it and we took uh, a complaint, um, the first of its kind, from Australia uh, to the UN Human Rights Committee. Um, in 1991. Yeah. Uh, and it was the first, not only the first complaint to the committee from Australia, but the first uh, to do with sexuality discrimination from anywhere in the world. Um, wow. That went on backwards and submissions backwards and forwards and hearings backwards and forwards for a couple of years until 1994 when the UN ruled in our favour, which was a huge step forward. Yeah. Um, and to cut a long story short, in response, at the end of 94, the federal government, the Keating government, passed uh, a law guaranteeing all Australians the right to sexual privacy. Mm. In response to that, we took a case to the High Court, asking the High Court to find that that federal law, the Sexual Privacy Act, and the Tasmanian law were inconsistent, and therefore the Tasmanian law was invalid. And when the High Court said, yep, we'll hear that case, that was quite promising, yep. <laughs> the Tasmanian government realised the game was up and the law was changed. So there was also um, that, there was that element to the campaign as well, which was, uh, if you like, like I said, going around the Tasmanian parliament to to these other, other bodies. And the other way that we went around the Tasmanian parliament to the obstacles... The, the hurdle that was there, yeah. uh, was to go to the people. So the whole time all of this was happening with the UN, High Court, Federal Government, 
we were travelling around the island um, talking to whoever would listen, uh, political party branches, union, uh, committees, CWAs, Rotary Clubs, clients um, clubs, all that, all mm. sports clubs, school groups, about what our lives were like. Uh, it was a storytelling campaign. You know, this is our, these are our stories. Oh, I love that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, um, there was a big emphasis on that. Yeah. Uh, and in a place like Tasmania, which is quite tight-knit, obviously, yeah. um, they, that had, had a big impact. And again, um, uh, just as us confronting the hatred, I think it had an impact on public opinion. So did uh, this storytelling campaign. And, and again, we saw you know, support every year going up and up and up until finally in 97, it was well above the national average. Um, so it wasn't just a campaign, if you like, to change the law. It was also about changing hearts and minds. Yeah, that sounds. It sounds wonderful. Like, and and no wonder people responded well because it's it, it's not until you really, I guess, walk in someone else's shoes, is it? Like it's that old saying, like you, you couldn't understand it if it wasn't your life. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And. Because uh, for a lot of people, particularly older people, I think this came as a revelation because so many gay men and lesbians uh, and transgender folk had left Tasmania um, when they came out and never came back. Uh, So there was less awareness of what our lives were like here. Um, That's why us... Telling our personal stories was so important um, in in achieving that reform, and that was certainly um, a really important lesson that I took in to the marriage equality debate was uh, the importance of these personal stories. When Parliament isn't doing the right thing, and Parliament definitely did not do the right thing on marriage equality for many years, mm-hmm. um, then you go to the people and you just you, you, you tell them why this reform matters and why it impacts your life, why discrimin- how discrimination impacts your life. Yeah, because um, then you jump... It makes a difference. Yeah, because you jumped from the sodomy fight to marriage equality, didn't you, after that? Well, um, so the, the law reform in Tasmania was 97. Yeah. Then there was a period of about six years where... Um, it was as if when the when the decriminalisation happened, it was as if to use a Tasmanian metaphor, it was as if a dam burst um, and outflowed all this fantastic legislation. Yeah. Uh, got the best anti-discrimination laws in the country, no exemptions allowing discrimination against LGBTI people. We've got these great relationship laws with the nation's first civil union scheme. Um, the ed- education policies uh, suddenly went from uh, the worst in Australia to the best. Same with policing, same with health. Um, and so, you know, that, that was a lot of work, but uh, a lot of very uh, positive work yeah. um, to, to, to bring those laws into place and, and to allow Tasmania not only to catch up, but to go ahead of the other states. Are we involved as one, in as that? As one American... As one American journalist said to me, 
it's as if in a space of a few years, Tasmania went from being Alabama <laughs> to being Vermont. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of incredible, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing that that... Uh, sometimes it felt like I'd be walking down the street and it felt like I'd walked into a parallel universe where everything looked the same, yep. but the attitudes were just completely different, <laughs> the opposite of what they used to be. Um, yeah, so that takes us up to about 2003, and then in 2004, the federal parliament passed John Howard's ban on same-sex marriages. Yeah. Um, I... <sighs> A lot of people don't remember, but back in 2004, when when that occurred, um, there was a lot of resistance from leads, some leaders in the LGBTI community in Sydney and Melbourne, a lot of resistance to actually campaigning for marriage equality. Um, I've heard this. It wasn't considered an important issue. It was considered a distraction from other important reforms. It was considered um, uh, too uh, controversial. Um, Those who were loyal to the Labor Party found it too difficult to deal with because Labor had supported Howard and and they didn't want their their party to be embarrassed. So uh, there was a lot of resistance and the only way to move the issue forward was to form a group dedicated to that particular reform. Mm. And that group was Australian Marriage Equality. So I got a bunch of people together, I think it was in June yeah. 2004, and and that's what we did. We formed AME. Wow. Okay. And it went from there. Yeah, it went from there, yeah. Because it kind of um, feels like it, it went, like there was a lot of momentum and then it sort of fell out of, view again and then suddenly in the last couple of years it really just amped up again yeah that's what it might look like but that's not what happened at all yeah i can imagine um (laughs) the uh there certainly is a sense amongst um, a large number of people that uh it all disappeared and then it all came back with the postal survey and there was a postal survey and then then the legislation passed and that that was that In fact, um, the 10 years in between um, were when marriage equality was actually won. So um, from 2004-05 through to 2015, um, there was an immense amount of community education and legislative activity lobbying and advocacy and all the rest to move the issue forward. Um, And it was a bit like Tasmania in the sense that uh, every time the issue came back to Parliament, and it came back many times, there'd be slightly more support uh, because the community was slightly more supportive. Um, uh, Initially, like I said, hardly any MP supported it, only Greens and Democrats would be. And then... Uh, more and more Labor members began to speak out in favour till finally the Labor Party adopted a policy in support. Um, and then more and more Liberals began to speak out in favour and then uh, the, what the Liberals should have done was have a conscience vote, but they opted instead to have a 
a public public vote. Um, but that process of getting the parties moving forward was because more and more people at a local level were speaking out. There were parliamentary inquiries, there were state same-sex marriage bills that went forward. Um, there was an immense amount of activity, immense amount of lobbying from groups like uh, psychologists for marriage equality and clergy for marriage equality. Mm. Um, it was... And again, the focus was on the kind of personal storytelling um, that I mentioned before in terms of the Tasmanian campaign. It's very similar. Um, in a way, it's a shame that the Postal Survey has obscured all that work um, because the Postal Survey would not have been one if it hadn't have been for all that work. Um, and my hope is to, you know, to do to do all I can to highlight the fact that so many people were working so hard before the Postal Survey. Yeah. When, I, when, I say, when I say the Postal Survey wouldn't have been won without that work, I'm speaking very deliberately there. Um, when marriage equality was first raised in Australia, there were, support was only 30, I think it was 38%. Yeah. Um, uh, the work that I'm talking about saw a steady increase in support in the public sphere um, up in the general public, up to, uh, well, I think the highest opinion poll result was about 72% um, in 2012 or 2013. Yeah. And it was the same in Parliament. Like I said, there was a gradual increase in support to 2015 where we had finally a declared majority of MPs in favour. Um, so without that work, those things wouldn't have happened. And we wouldn't have got the state to the stage where the right-wingers in the, the Liberal Party felt that they needed to have a postal survey. <laughs> yeah. um, and we wouldn't have got to the stage where the postal survey turned the result that it did of 60, 61% because, uh, you know, support before that had been higher and we had you know, a few percentage points to lose. Yeah. Um, we, without that work... Have lost that survey and lost marriage quality. Do you think places like uh, the US, when they started legalising, you know, and then there was Prop 8 and stuff, do you think that had any effect on how Australians saw marriage equality? Um, I consistently found that Australians were less interested in what was happening overseas than I was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, other Australians, They're, yeah, not much interest. The only the country that had the biggest impact here, uh, for two reasons, was New Zealand. Yeah, when New Zealand got marriage equality, um, people did sit up and pay attention. Mm. Uh, it much less so with the United States because that was a judicial decision, not a legislative one. Yeah, uh, and and even less so Britain. Uh, and the reason that New Zealand had an impact was that Australia, you know, Australians like to look down their noses at New Zealand, uh, and suddenly New Zealand could look down at their noses at us. <laughs> um, that didn't go down very well. And also because New Zealand's close, and a lot of same-sex couples from here flew to New Zealand to get married. Yeah, I have a, a friend that she and her wife flew there to get married. Yeah, yeah well, I've got a my, my partner works at a factory in Hobart and two of his friends from the factory uh, went to Wellington 
yeah. sorry, to Auckland to get married. And um, they, about 50 of their friends and family from Hobart went as well. And they're all pretty middle-of-the-road kind of people mm. uh, who wouldn't get political about much. Um, but for all of them, it was just such a slap in the face to know that the wedding that was so important to their friends, to the two guys who got married, mm. um, the effort they went through to go to Auckland to be there at the wedding um, all meant nothing in the eyes of the Australian government. That when they got back to Hobart, these two guys who had exchanged solemn vows of lifelong commitment were legal strangers. I mean, uh, that happened again and again <laughs> throughout Australia with people going with their friends to and their family to New Zealand to get married, coming back and seeing that it meant nothing here. Yeah. That, that had a, I think, probably um, that had an impact that was as big as anything else that happened, certainly bigger than uh, decisions in Britain or um, France or Canada or the US. Yeah, I just remember because the US was so loud with, you know, the um, people protesting against it and stuff. Like it filtered a lot into my sort of worldview, I guess. Um, yeah, so uh, like, and it, I mean, it didn't change my opinion on marriage equality, of course, but I thought people around me had sort of were listening, I guess, again to those stories over there of. People had been together for 60 years. Um, one was dying. You know what I mean? Like, so it's those yeah. kind of, yeah. Like, just let them get married. <laughs> What's the big deal? Um, yeah, so. How does it... I think Obama's decision to support was quite significant for mm-hmm. people. Um, but probably more so for people who already supported it. Yeah. Uh, and just made them stronger in their conviction. Uh, and, the, and the US decision, uh, the Supreme Court decision, probably the same. You can see that in the opinion polls. Um, after about 2012, uh, support didn't increase a lot. It had reached its maximum, yeah. which was somewhere between 65 and 72%, depending on the polling, um, on the polling company. Uh, but what you did see is a big shift um, from people who were soft supporters to people who were strong supporters. Uh, And um, that was because, I think, of uh, the situation in the US and and other places. People were getting angry about Australia being left behind. Um, And again, I think that had a big contribution to the outcome of the postal survey Mm. uh, because, um, you know, the other side, the no case, spent millions of dollars on all all these fear campaigns about um, gender fluidity in safe schools and um, the slippery slope in religious freedom and and whatever. (laughs) Marrying dogs. People marrying bridges. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's a whole other thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and really, it didn't. You know, overall, and it probably had an impact in particular places on particular people, but it didn't have a major impact overall. Um, support only fell a few percentage points because yeah. of that, and that's because almost about between forty-five and fifty percent of Australians had shifted from being uh, soft. 
A lot of Australians achieve different things, soft supporters to strong supporters, and that strong support base was somewhere between 45 and 50%. And um, is the strong and support nothing, nothing that you threw at those people is going to make any difference. Yeah, yeah, and that, yeah, and that's great, isn't it? How did you yeah. feel when the result came down? Um, well, like everyone else, a yeah. huge sense of relief yeah. because it was such a strain. Mm. Um, uh, and also, um, and also a great sense of pride. Um, that Australians had voted yes and, and and even more so a great sense of pride because Tasmanians had voted uh, the Tasmanian vote was above the national average yeah um, what a turnaround yeah well exactly yeah. that was a real vindication yeah. of all the work that we'd done in Tasmania um, including specifically during the, the, the postal survey campaign because there wasn't much of a campaign, a national campaign in Tasmania, uh, there was the phone banking, which was great, mm. um, but even that was Tasmanian-specific in the sense that Tasmanians only called other Tasmanians. Um, and uh, we ran our own campaign here with our own local voices, mm. uh, you know, TV ads, uh, newspaper ads, all that kind of stuff, and um, it worked. Yeah. Uh, Tasmanians came out in great, greater numbers than in any other state except Victoria, uh, in greater numbers for the Yes campaign than in any other state but Victoria. And, uh, yeah, that, that, like I said, there was a great vindication of, of um, the work we'd done and the change that had occurred. Uh, um, the big disappointment, of course, was New South Wales. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the... Uh, I, 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 some, something happened in the western suburbs of Sydney that is still to be accounted for. The ABC's uh, Vote Compass website, which did large-scale surveys on this issue before the postal survey, found that in, electric, in the electorates in western Sydney, <coughs> um, there was... About fifty percent support for marriage equality before the postal survey. Uh, when the results came in after the survey, those results, the yes vote had gone down from fifty percent to even down below thirty percent in some electorates. What? What, um, what happened there? Why? Clearly, the no campaign focused on those electorates. Yeah. What? Did the Yes campaign focus as much? Um, I, I don't think it did. Was that a mistake? Um, maybe. Um, particularly in the long term. Yeah. Uh, if, I, if I was, uh, you know, the gay teenage son of the Iraqi refugees living in Bankstown <coughs> and I saw those results the day after the announcement was made, mm, I'd think terrible. that everyone around me hated me. Yeah. Yeah, um, it would be there's awesome. certainly a lot of work to be done there, mm. and I and I don't mean to sort of select out the refugees there. That's not no, oh no, I understand. Your ethnicity yeah. isn't the issue. Your religion yeah. isn't the issue. There's something else going on, um, because you know electorates with similar demographics in the northern suburbs of 
and Western suburbs of Melbourne didn't return those kinds of flows. Yeah, yeah. There's something going on there, something um, that we really need to focus on if we're not to abandon those young LGBTI people to uh, feeling you know, really isolated. Yeah, I think in that respect it did so much damage, didn't it? Like, and we haven't even seen the the real damage that it caused yet. I know I was worried. I've got a six-year-old daughter. I was terrified of what people would say to her at school or what we would get in the mailbox and stuff. Um, it caused damage, absolutely. And yeah. we knew it was going to cause damage. Mm. And that's why um, in 2016, at the end of 2016, I left Australian Marriage Equality, even though it was an organisation that I had founded and been the national director of for many years. Mm. I left to just put my energy into fighting a website. Um, I had seen in Tasmania in the 90s the damage that that hate had done. I know uh, the families of young gay men who killed themselves because of that hate, and I wanted to do everything I could to make sure that didn't happen again because I knew that a plebiscite would be a platform for that kind of hate. And even though the Prime Minister and others run around and say it was a great success, um, first of all, we didn't have to go through that. We, the Liberals could have easily have had a conscience vote on yeah. their own initiative without having to ask the public for permission. Mm. And secondly, yes, there was a lot of deep damage caused. Yeah. Um, the surveys that have come out already show that clearly. But yeah, and I just I, I can't stand sort of seeing Malcolm Turnbull himself on the back for that that victory um it yeah it just makes me feel sick to my stomach yeah it was definitely the wrong thing to do to go into the house of representatives as he did after the final vote on mm. marriage equality in november last year and say we won we got you marriage equality we won you marriage equality yeah. no 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 you absolutely <laughs> did not unnecessary obstacles yeah. to marriage equality which we overcame yeah um, how do you feel being, like, such an important part of Australian LGBT history? I don't think about it. Yeah. Probably I seriously <laughs> don't. <laughs> I, I just, there's, there's uh, yeah, there's always a job to do. I just do the job. Yeah. What, what do you... Seriously, seriously, I'm not, that's not false humility. I just... No, I can tell. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, um, yeah, I can absolutely tell. What What are the next steps for you? What What do you think the next fights are? Um, the, the There's two things that occupy my mind now. First, um, I've been working closely with a bunch of really fantastic transgender people in Hobart and uh, on Sistan and Devonport to um, try and get some really good... Uh, sex and gender diverse law reform in Tasmania. Yeah. I mentioned at the outset how Tasmania had cross-dressing laws for many years, mm. or laws against cross-dressing. Um, there's a terrible legacy there from those laws uh, that we need to overcome uh, by taking the lead, I think, on, on transgender law reform. Yeah. Um, the other issue on my mind is really so-called religious freedom. So, of course, the backlash to marriage equality, both in Australia, both in the United States and Australia, has been this push to allow uh, service providers to turn away same-sex couples, yeah. to allow discrimination against same-sex couples who are married by faith-based organisations. Um, that's absolutely not on. 
Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm doing my most, my utmost to raise awareness about that and to campaign against that. Um, because there's a report and nationally. Yeah, there's a report that's meant to have come out by now, isn't there? Um, the there was a report that, uh, tabled or given to the prime minister by uh, Philip Ruddock, who chaired an expert panel on this issue. Um, so it's in the government's hands, but it hasn't been released yet. And what do you think? And, um, yeah. I'm fearing the worst. I'm yeah. preparing for the worst. Yes. Yeah. Maybe then I won't be so disappointed. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, given our history, I think it's probably there's, best. There's a, big push, there's a big push on to allow greater what they call freedom mm. uh, for religious organisations to discriminate. But what it's really about is, is, is um, finding new ways to treat us in a prejudiced and discriminatory manner. Um, and uh, the more that this issue is raised and discussed, the more that Australians can see what the implications are, the better. Because where all this leads is to a situation, uh, to a situation where shop owners and different organisations can hang signs on their door saying no gays. Mm. That's what it's about. Yeah. It, and it takes us back to a time in Australia that no one wants to go back to in the 1950s when it was okay to hang or the 1930s or whatever, when it was okay to hang a sign on a, on a shop front window saying no Aborigines or no Jews or no Irish. Oh, um, makes me no, feel sick. Or no Catholics. Yeah. That's not on. And it's essential that we educate the Australian population about these dangers because once people see this possibility, they will reject it out of hand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. And also, thank you so much for everything that you've done for Australia. And, thank you. And our community. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it, it's absolutely amazing just what you've done. And, I, I mean, I think you should be really proud, but I know you're probably not thinking about it. So. <laughs> uh, I, am, I am very, I'm very proud. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think it's incredible. Yeah, no, I'm proud of the contribution I've been able to make, for sure. Yeah, it, um, it feels very moving uh, to listen to you as well, I think, when you talk about it all. So, yeah, it's, it is very um, moving, I think. Well, I'm glad I'm able to communicate um, uh, uh, to, to communicate, how can I put it, the optimism that I feel. Mm. Um, sometimes it seems like the world's getting worse and Sometimes it seems like there's increased prejudice and authoritarianism in the world. Um, and when we, when we see that happening, we always have to focus on the, on the good stories, the stories of positive change and how that occurred, um, not to get too down about the way things are. And uh, so it's important to me to be able to tell the story about how things have changed for the better, both in Tasmania and nationally, yeah. um, because I think that instills... Um, like I said before, it instills optimism. Yeah, yeah, it really does. I hope, I hope it does. Well, yeah, you've you've completely done that for me today, and I'm sure our listeners will agree when they when they listen. Yeah, well, thank you again. No worries. Thank you again for asking me to uh, come on.